But if you have something you can take notes on, you can jot some things down. If you need more information later, you can get with me. I'll give you whatever it is that you're needing from the lesson tonight. But uh, Hebrews chapter 12, we'll be there in just a moment. I want to thank everyone for your kindness this morning to uh, the Job family. And they are launching out by faith. I think most of you are probably here this morning. If you weren't, we had Scott and Julie Job that were here with us and uh, was Julie Tigner uh, for many years as she was here. And uh, we, had, we hadn't really gotten to know Scott a lot because as they were uh, dating and um, seeking to be married, they were kind of long distance relationship, living apart for quite a good amount of that time. And then when they were married, they moved to uh, Oklahoma. And so uh, we've seen Scott in and out at different things, but never really gotten to interact with him a lot. Or most of you probably have not been able to do that. And so it was in, encouraging to, to hear from them and kind of see their burden as to why. I think that's how the Lord works, is that He reveals a need and then often he calls the person that sees the need to fill that need. Uh, I think you see that um, in the Gospels as Jesus tells his disciples, pray the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into his harvest. And then he calls the very people that he said, pray that God will send more people. He then calls the people that he told to pray about it. And I think that that's happened in their lives. And uh, we got to spend some time with them this afternoon at lunch. And I'm excited about what God is um, getting them ready for. I kind of had asked them how we can help and how we can pray as uh, things begin. And um, he mentioned that there's some there's some challenges to it. There's only two real neighborhood communities in the county. Both of them are gated communities that, that can make it difficult to meet people where they are, interact with them. And then uh, other than that, it's large plots of land and farms and different things. And uh, so they're adjusting to that, learning about it, and they're they're asking us to pray for them, and we'll do that. If you would pray, they're trying to raise a port. Scott works with the uh, Postal Service, so of course his next month is going to be a fairly busy month with uh, the holidays coming, but uh, pray that um, they're praying that they'd be able to raise enough support um, to be able to give themselves, or at least Scott, to give themselves to uh, this ministry full time as they as they plant it, uh, he's willing. Right now, he's working. His job is is full time. He's willing to do that and willing to do it for an extended time. But they would like to uh, see God allow them to really put themselves into planning this church with their efforts. And so they're raising support just like a, a missionary might, and uh, it would carry over for a certain amount of time until the church is sort of self sustaining and. There's a few churches like ours that they've been able to get into. There's a church planning fellowship that we're actually a part of, and uh, they're looking at being taken on by them. That'll be a, a significant uh, portion of their support for the first few years. Uh, but if you would pray for them, Scott is from Oklahoma, and, and he and I were having this conversation today, and he, he asked me the question. He said, well, kind of what helps separate some people that submit? Or We, we get a lot of emails. There's some weeks we'll get... 20 emails and letters from missionaries or church planners that ask if they can come present their work and if we can take them on support. We'd love to have them all. Uh, my my mentality is we, we try to have people um, that we are going to be in uh, able to take on for support fairly quickly. Uh, we don't want to bring somebody in and it's helpful to give a love offering, but what they need is kind of a monthly support. So if we're not at the place we can take on new missionaries. We don't have them for those couple months, but right now I think we're at the place that we can. And so he said, what's kind of sets apart 
a list of 20 because it is. Sometimes it's like picking something out of a bucket. You can see where somebody's from or they're sending church or uh, some of the connections they may have, and it's difficult uh, to do that. I said often there's a personal connection from one, one person or another. We have a missionary couple coming in January, and the wife actually grew up here some as a child. She's related to... Uh, Kevin and Becky Hibbard, and it's it's their niece, and so there's some connection, um, but that doesn't mean that people we don't have connections to, we don't want to support, and Scott's facing a little bit of that right now, we talked about it this afternoon, he's from Oklahoma, and so he really doesn't know a lot of people here, and so when he calls a church in Virginia and says, we're planting a church, and we're looking for support, we'd like to come present our works, that can be difficult to kind of have an inroad, and so uh, just pray that that'll be the case. I said, sometimes a missionary will call and say, hey, can I drop by your office and just talk to you for 30 minutes or so or an hour or so. And sometimes that help happens and helps introduce people. But just pray that God, by whatever means necessary, will bring them what they need and, and bring it quickly because they've already begun this Bible study and they're hoping to see this church uh, kind of formed over the next year or so. And they're praying for three or four uh, core families to, that have been discipled already, so that they can start with them and uh, then uh, disciple and, and bring others to Christ as well. So I'm excited about it. Uh, as we mentioned this morning, you can still give to that. Uh, I told them we would uh, forward on anything that's been given throughout throughout the day today, and you can designate. There's a note in your bulletin about that as well. Just give to the Job family either way. All right, Hebrews chapter 12 tonight, and we're going to uh, walk through. Tonight's our other night in this series of questions. In the month of December, we'll have uh, a few different uh, sessions or seminar kind of ideas, lessons that we'll have, and we'll have two or three in an evening and let you pick which one you go to. And then uh, in January, starting back to some of our adult groups, and I'm kind of finalizing some of those things now, I have some ideas of some different classes we're going to be doing, men's and ladies, and some different things. But if you have suggesting something you're curious about or something you'd be interested in even teaching or helping with a class, you can let me know, looking still for <clears throat> some final uh, decisions on some of that. One of the things we've talked about is having a, a grief and uh, support class that just kind of walks through what it's like to deal with loss as a Christian. And We've mentioned a few times we had over more than 20 funerals from within our church family in the last uh, two and a half or three years or so, and so there's, there's all of us experience that, and so uh, giving some time for people to kind of gather together, support one another, and then study God's Word, what it says about those things, and uh, a number of different things that we'll be doing uh, coming up in January. But tonight, uh, we're going to do kind of like we did last week. We had you a few weeks ago submit some questions, a number of them uh, kind of tied together, and so we've We've kind of grouped a few of them to, to kind of a topic or a theme, and so I'm going to try to cover four or five of those tonight. So be ready to jump around in your Bible tonight. Uh, that may be a good or a bad thing. It has been turkey week for many of you, and uh, so some of you may be thinking, I can't jump too much, but that's why we're going to do it. We're going to try to keep ourselves alert and awake tonight. But if you would, Hebrews chapter 12, like last time, we started with kind of a, a more lighthearted one. Uh, about dinosaurs, and that was one of the questions. And so uh, we're going to start with another lighthearted one that actually I got late in the week last week that I think was prompted by my other comment. Um, I had somebody ask about my sports teams not doing well. And we said, it's not personal questions, it's supposed to be spiritual questions. And so then somebody submitted one, and it actually ties that somewhat to a 
spiritual topic or idea. So we're going to start with a more lighter-hearted one, but it says actually two questions that were similar. How should Christians view or treat sports? Or it kind of brought up the idea of modern culture, pop culture, but particularly it was talking about sports. And so we're going to throw out a couple quick thoughts very quickly on this. And it is something that's interesting and something that Christians kind of have to reconcile. It's a part of our culture and society. Uh, all cultures and societies throughout history have had some amounts of this. But no culture or society like modern culture, particularly modern American culture, have ever had sports or athletics burst onto the scene in the way that we have in the last 50 to 55 years or so. Uh, I was able to find some stats for 2017. It says Americans spent $100 billion on sports. That's individual citizens, not sports teams and those kind of things. It says $56 billion was spent on tickets. $33 billion was spent on sporting equipment. That could be for kids' sports or whatever it might be. And about $20 billion was spent on gym memberships. Now, it doesn't mean that all those gym memberships were active. It just means that's what people were paying for them, but it's something that stands out. And so how do we think about it as Christians? I'm just going to give you a few references. For instance, 1 Corinthians, how does the Bible talk about it? 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 26, it kind of talks about what we would call today kind of shadow boxing or training. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24 talks about, it says those that run, running away to those that strive or run or work in those athletic things, they says they do so to gain a prize. Uh, we have Hebrews chapter 12. Look at verse number 1. It says, uh, let us, it says, We're foreseeing. We also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Let, aside, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. And notice this. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us. So it's interesting. There's some other sports analogies in scriptures, athletic analogies in scriptures. And actually the Bible speaks positively in pretty much every spot that it speaks. Now, it speaks positively about participating in them because there's a lot of good that can come from them. We know that they can do things for uh, stress reduction, weight control, endurance, self-control, but that really only pertains to the people that are actively involved in it. Like, I don't get more fit and show more self-control by watching my favorite team on Saturday. That doesn't happen. But in the terms of like amusement, it, it, I say that, I read those verses to say, the Bible doesn't speak about it, I, and I know people that think about it this way, that it was birthed somehow out of culture, so inherently it is a sinful thing. Uh, and, and there's a lot of other reasons. They say they look at the individual people that are involved in it and say, well, they're sinful people, so we can't... Well, we could go anywhere if we couldn't ever be involved with others that are sinners. Uh, that's the case. Um, but it speaks positively. It doesn't call it a sin. You notice the Bible doesn't use sin as like an analogy for things we should do. It, it just doesn't do that. It doesn't say, instead of saying, let us run the race with perseverance and endurance, it doesn't say, like the burglar who can't get in the front door, let us go to the back door and really try hard. Like the Bible doesn't do that. It doesn't use things that are sinful as analogies for how we should live our Christian lives. And so when the Bible gives us an analogy for something athletic, he's, it's not, he's not going to use something sinful to do that. And so it's not inherently sinful, but um, we can look at it just like any other area of life. We have to balance in our regards as far as our involvement. We can commit sometimes too much time, too much money and other resources. Does it divert us from our spiritual lives? I think, of course, participating in it, physical things can be good. 
First Timothy chapter four verse eight says that bodily exercise profiteth little. Now that doesn't mean it, it's useless. It means little in comparison, because then it goes on and says godliness is profitable unto all things in the life that is now and in the life that is to come. And and really that's not an analogy to tell us that athletics are bad. It's saying as good as it is for your body to do these things, it's even better to show self-discipline in godliness. And so they're not inherently wicked, but just like anything else in our lives, they can be used for something sinful, but it can also can be used a tool to bring others to Christ. So that's our lighthearted one of the evening. Number two, question number two. And this is a good one. Someone asked, do believers immediately go to heaven when they die? Do believers immediately go to heaven when they die? Look at Luke chapter 23, if you would. Do Christians, or those that die in faith, immediately go to heaven in the moment of their death? And that's a good question. Now, I think if you've been around here long enough, or a church with a similar structure of faith or statement of faith, you probably just assume the answer to this question. But I just want to read, let me read for you some of the things. Here's some of the beliefs of some of the common, um, I want to call them denominations, different religious beliefs from that are popular in our country and society today. According to Watchtower Bible and the Tract Society from Jehovah's Witness faith, Jehovah's Witness who die, they remain in an unconscious state of soul sleep until the resurrection. And at the resurrection, Jehovah remembers them, and they are brought back to life. Quote-unquote, remembers them. I'm glad that the Lord does not forget us. Uh, the doctrine of soul sleep is also taught by Seventh-day Adventists. The Roman Catholic Church predominantly teaches that all believers, Catholic and non-Catholic, who die, enter a place of punishment or purgatory or a place to atone for sins, not yet covered by Jesus Christ, death on the cross. And once these sins have been sufficiently dealt with or punished or covered and purified, they may enter paradise. And then there's proponents for both of those views. I could go on and on. There's it's actually a number of religious views that do not believe that in death we immediately enter the presence of our Creator, but rather we sleep and we wait but there's a number of places in Scripture, and we won't spend long on this tonight because a few Wednesday nights ago we dealt with the bodily resurrection is one of the core aspects of our faith. You can go back and listen to that. But for instance, in Luke chapter 23, Jesus on the cross, look at verse 39. And though we may assume we know the answer to this, it's good to find in Scripture. It says one of the male factors, the other crim- one of the criminals that was hanging with uh, on the cross beside Jesus, says he hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be the Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, What's the next words? Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. That's fairly clear, isn't it? Today you're be with me in paradise. This verse actually has a lot of implications for many things. It kind of gives us an indication to what life is like in death, and that we are recognizable. That, that though we don't understand, we do not have our bodies, and we do not. We're not immediately placed into this new resurrected body at death. Because where was Jesus' body after he died? Where was it? You can say it. 
after Jesus was buried, he, or after Jesus died, he was buried, right? So he was buried. His body is in the grave. Yet today, he's with the other man that died. How is that? Well, it explains that though the body is buried in death, that the soul, the spirit live on, that it is a recognizable individual, and that it dwells in the presence of God, that there is heaven immediately for the believer. And so Jesus gives us that promise there. We know that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it says that being absent from the body is being present with the Lord. It doesn't give us this in-between stage. There's nowhere in Scripture that teaches this place of purgatory, as some would call it, or this intermediate stage of waiting. Jesus says, today you'll be with me. Paul says in Corinthians, absent from the body is presence with the Lord. And there's no transit there. You think about uh, the description in Luke chapter 16, the story of the rich man and Lazarus. When it describes the beggar, when it describes Lazarus' death, it says that the angels carried him into Abraham's side or a picture of paradise. It gives the sense that immediately he was in the presence of heaven or in the presence of God. Immediately. And again, he was also recognizable even by, notice this, the man that went into hell. And so the opposite is also true. When someone that is not a believer dies, they immediately go into hell. That there is not a place that they go that they can work off or negotiate their salvation. That death is the ultimate reckoning for man's soul. And that it is immediate at the time of death. Revelation chapter 6 verse 9, if you want to just jot it down, go back and read it later. John is describing the opening of the seals and it says that uh, when, I believe it's the fourth seal that is opened and uh, as it's opened, it says that he looked and under the throne were who? It was those that were slain for, the, for their faith in Christ. And so they are there, not waiting somewhere else. They are there in the presence of Jesus. And so someone was asking, actually it was two different questions kind of formed two different ways, but where do we go in the immediate moment of our death? Well, the Bible seems to answer that fairly quickly. That our soul and spirit go to God and that we wait for our bodily resurrection that is promised by Him as well. Alright, the next one, uh, number three tonight. And this is a good question. It was a couple different ways it was phrased. But I'm going to phrase it this way. Um, at what point, and this is a fairly... Serious question. And let me just tell you, this is something that needs to be addressed in the church. Um, I think more and more, because of the influence of culture and society, what we see, what we read, and what we hear. And I also think it needs to be addressed with children, unfortunately, earlier probably than it ever has been. And here's the question. At what point does something sensual become sin? Um, and have you ever noticed that? Like, working with teenagers, and, and even even before that, working with junior campers, there is this, like, natural interest. There should be this natural interest between boys and girls. And I remember going to uh, preach at a couple different junior camps, and uh, I could by the end of the week, you could always see, here's this 9-year-old girl that is just heartbroken because this 10-year-old boy is still convinced all girls are evil. And she just can't understand it, right? She just can't get it. But there's this natural desire. There's this interest. And then as teenagers, hey, I'm kind of interested in you, and you're kind of interested in me. Let's, there's always 
how do they call it? We always call it talking. They talk first. Before we do anything else, we talk. And there's a difference between talking like conversationally and talking like exclusively. There's a difference, evidently. And we have all these terms and we define it different ways. But at what point... Now, those things were not what we would call sensual. It would be a, a, a romantic interest, a natural interest. But the question is sort of phrased, at what point do those things become sin? Or at what point for a believer... Uh, is something sinful. Of course, the Bible speaks about not just physically, but it also speaks mentally about and of the heart, the lust of the eyes and, and of the heart and of the mind. And so what does the Bible have to say about that? And I think we'll, we'll try to address it fairly quickly tonight. There's a word, and you can jot it down because you'll see it all throughout, particularly the New Testament. And there's a word, and it is fornication. And that simply is a very... When you read that, you may think of a particular thing, a particular sin or act of sensuality. But that is just a broad term for sexual sin. In the same way that you could say violence would also cover like murder and fighting and abuse, that violence would cover all of it, you could say the same thing, that fornication covers a broad array of sensual or sexual Sins. The word is actually in the Greek, it's pornea, which you can hear our modern word for pornography would come from that. And you could say it this way, in, in a summary of, if you take the verses that are said about it, you could say it and define it this way from the New Testament. It's the act of a person engaging with someone other than his or her spouse. That is what Scripture teaches it as. And that could be mentally, it could be physically, it could be emotionally. And it doesn't always have to be with one other individual or another married individual. I want you to look, if you would, and, and let's, um, let's look at a number of places. Uh, turn first to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15, and let's look there. Matthew 15. There's all sorts of descriptions of this type of sin. Romans chapter 1. Uh, it's many different things listed. One, verse 29, Paul includes it in a list of all kinds of immorality. Um, in 1 Corinthians 5, 1, it's used to describe a sin that was being tolerated in which a man was having an affair with his father's wife. And it's just, it, it classifies all of these things. But look if you would, Matthew chapter 15, and look at verse number 19. It says, For out of the heart... Proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, notice this, fornications, thefts, false witness, and blasphemies. Would, I think we would, we would do well to say that if someone commits murder, something went wrong before they committed murder. Would we agree with that? In, in 99% of circumstances, there was something else going on in someone's mind and heart before they committed the act of murder. So it says, from the heart comes murder. I don't think we would have any issue saying there is a brokenness that if it would have been identified, maybe it would have kept from further action. But notice the list of things that come from the heart. Not just murder, but notice evil thoughts, adulteries. And this is fornication. Fornication voids or is, excuse me, violates the seventh commandment, which is, thou shalt not commit what? Adultery, right? Isn't it interesting that that is in a list, it's in the commands not to sin against God. God says, I am the Lord your God, 
Therefore, don't do these things. Why is it? Because adultery or fornication, it's not only against one person, it is against God. And so the question has come up, and, and actually maybe even more prevalently than we sometimes realize, and especially with young people, uh, the question comes up, well, if it's, immor- if it's adultery just because I am married, then what if I am not married? That becomes the question. What is okay if I'm not married as a person? Well, if you go back to the biblical definition, anything that's not with your spouse. Well, what if I don't have a spouse? Well, that would include anything that's not with your spouse because you don't have one. And so as it would include that, I want you to think Hebrews chapter 13. Look there if you would. Hebrews 13. Because this is something that God has gifted or that God has given for the purpose of marriage and in the context of marriage. Hebrews chapter 13, a familiar verse probably to us. Hebrews chapter 13, look at verse number 4. It says, Marriage is honorable in all, in the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. Notice that first phrase, marriage is honorable in all. Now, we're all there. It's talking about people. It says marriage is honorable. It's a good thing for all people. And it says, and in talking about immorality or impurity or sexual sin or sensual uh, deviance or temptation outside of those things, it says marriage is honorable for all. And so the rules that pertain to people in marriage also pertain to people outside of marriage. Because God says, this is a gift that I've given for within the, and within the context of marriage. For instance, you read in, uh, I believe it's 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and in, in, in 1 Corinthians 7, when Paul references and he speaks, he's, he's talking about people that are married or unmarried. He talks about widows and he talks about those that have lost their spouse. And uh, he, he says, he kind of gives his own opinion. He says, I wish that we could all just serve the Lord single like me. Now, there's almost this little sense of um, humor that I think Paul is placing into that. Um, maybe he just felt bad for himself. I don't know. But he says, I wish we could all just be single like me. But then he goes on to explain that marriage has its purpose. And his insinuation is not, I'm single, so I don't have to have all the rules of marriage as far as it goes for immorality and adultery. He's implying, because I'm single, that gift of God is not given to me because I don't have it through marriage. And the Bible is very clear all throughout Scripture. Look, if you would, at Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. Or, I'm sorry, we'll, I'll read that to you. You look at Ephesians 5. Let me put you in reverse. Ephesians 5, if you would. The Bible makes it fairly clear. And you would be, again, you would be surprised, I think, at how often this may come up and how often this is excused. And let me just say it in a number of ways. Uh, excused by action, excused in thought, and excused in what I entertain myself with and what I'm willing to view. I'm not committing this act, so I don't care if the people on TV that I watch or whatever show it is that I'm coming across or whatever it is, movie or whatever thing that I'm reading, consistently talks about or displayed acts of immorality. It's not me committing it. Well, the Bible says it comes from where? The heart, the mind. And what I put in, I give this seedbed to, to allow it to grow, and it can only eventually stretch into my own life. 
Ephesians chapter 5, look at verse 3. It makes it pretty clear across the board. But fornication, all uncleanness, or covetousness, which doesn't have to be for an item, it can also be for a relationship or for a person. Notice this phrase. Let it not be once named among you as becometh saints. What is he saying? He says fornication, uncleanness, covetousness, even the desire for these things. You as Christians, this should not be named among God's people. It should not be excused. So the question is kind of, at what point does this become sin? And we're for, for appropriateness sake tonight, we won't go into the depth of every aspect of every possible... I mean, we're one of the more deviant societies that has ever existed on the planet. And there's, it doesn't take you long to figure that out. You sit with young people long enough, you sit with adults long enough, and you talk to them about these things, you see things online, you read criminal record reports, you read all these things. This is an issue. It's a huge issue in our society and in our culture today. Something that just is prevalent, prevalent. And we can't, as Christians, let our minds be numbed by it. And we can't excuse it in our own hearts or in our own minds. Because it is not just an act, it's a desire and it's a thought. It's something that we place in our own minds and it's something that our own hearts begin to desire. And the Bible says that even those things should not be named among Christian people. Because notice the description, fornication, that would be the act, uncleanliness, that's kind of the spirit of it. And then notice covetousness, that's even my desire for this. You say, how do I fight that scripturally? Only the Holy Spirit can do that in our lives. Only God's Word can wash and purge us because there are natural inclinations in us that are bent by sin. And we have to rely on God's Holy Spirit to work in us and purify us of those things. So the question being, at what point does it become sin? The moment that our minds and our hearts begin to dwell on those things. It's not just an act and it's not refined just to someone who is married or not married. We all have the same rules, if you would say it that way. And that it is a gift of God given to us within the context of marriage and that God treats it seriously. Why else? Isn't it interesting that that adultery and fornication is the sin that God has chosen to describe what it's like when His people, His church, or His people Israel, rebel against Him. He calls it adultery or immorality or fornication. And God thinks very seriously of it. Let's look at one more tonight. Maybe We might have a chance for... A second. But this is a fairly serious one. And a difficult one. And if you have, if you have, some of you, I would guess, maybe even had this discussion around a Thanksgiving table. Isn't it interesting how those come up around holidays or whatever it may be? And if you have a skeptic in your family toward the Lord, this is something that's going to get brought up quite often. And it's one of the first accusations that sort of hurled at God or at the God that we believe the biblical scripture, scriptural God, Jehovah particularly. And it's this, how is God good if he commanded the destruction of an entire people? Uh, in other words, how is God good if he is for, you may hear it phrased this way, how is God good if he committed, was willing to let his people commit genocide, destroying, killing an entire people group? How is it good if God commanded the murder of men and women and children? How is God good? And you say, well, this is a hefty one to end on. It's, it's going to spin at the end, and it, and it points us to the grace of God as well. I'm going to read you a quote 
um, by, you may have heard of Richard Dawkins. He's an evolutionary biologist, very famous and for his, I don't know what you would call it, scientific uh, prowess. But here, here, here's what he said in reading the Old Testament. He said, the God of the Old Testament ordered genocide. Therefore, he is a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleansing, misogynist, a homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomachistic, capriciously malevolent bully. That's a pretty stout accusation, is it not? So how do we answer that question? And, I, and I'm thinking that the question that was submitted to a couple of different people, that it's probably not their own thoughts about the Lord, but as Christians, this is a thought that we're going to get from others, that say, how can you serve and call a God loving, who when I look in what you say is His Word, commanded this? I want you to look, if you would, let's, let's start with this. Look at Ezekiel 18. Look at Ezekiel 18. Because the people that feel this way, and maybe some of you have felt this, or questioned this, or maybe even before you're a Christian, felt this way about the Lord. But ultimately, this is a misconception of God's character and a misunderstanding of God's justice. Maybe you can even jot that down. It might be a helpful way to phrase it to people. But it's a misconception of God's character and a misunderstanding of of God's justice, when we would say that God committed murder in this way, or that God judged in this way cruelly. I want you to look at Exodus 18, verse 32. And I want you to read, well, let's start in verse 30 to see who's speaking. I'll let you read verse 30. Somebody can holler it out. Who's talking? Once you find it, you can holler it out. Uh, Sorry, Ezekiel 18, verse 30. Did I tell you the wrong one? Ezekiel 18, verse 30. Who is it? God. God's the one speaking, right? So here is what God says His attitude is toward people. Notice verse 32. I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth, saith the Lord God. Wherefore, turn yourselves and live ye. He says, I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth. But what is He talking about? Look at verse 30. Uh, verse 30. Repent, turn yourselves from all transgressions, all your transgressions. So iniquity shall not be your ruin. Cast away from you all your transgressions whereby you have transgressed and make a new heart, make you a new heart and a new spirit. For why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth. It mean, literally, he, he that is evil or he that dies in his evil. God's desire is not... He does not take joy and enjoyment in the destruction or the death of people. This is just one example, but all over Scripture, this is the case. This is a tough question, and you may hear this question phrased in different ways. For instance, you may say, how is God good if He is for genocide? How is God good? How how many have ever heard a question like this? How is God good if He allowed Hitler to rise to power and convince thousands and thousands upon thousands of Germans to follow him and lead them to kill millions and millions of people and plunge the world into the deaths of millions of more people through World War II. Why did God allow him to get to that point? And isn't it interesting? Here is 
while you're listening, turn to Leviticus chapter 18. It's interesting how we we judge God by our own standard of morality, and we judge Him with a double-edged sword, which He's we're, as a society we're not going to let Him off one way or the other. So we would say, how is it that God allows Hitler to raise up people to kill millions and for millions more to die? He's a cruel God. And the same breath, or in the same group of people, would also say, how is it that God allowed thousands of Canaanites to die at the hands of His people? I want you to look, if you would, Leviticus chapter 18. Look at the description of the people that died. Leviticus 18. This is before they ever enter. This takes a little bit of brave thinking about the Lord. But look at, look at Leviticus chapter 18. It says, O the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, I am the Lord your God. Notice this phrase. After the doings of the land of Egypt, wherein ye dwelt, shall ye not do. And after the doings of the land of Canaan, whither I bring you, shall ye not do. Neither shall you walk in their ordinances. You shall do my judgments and keep my ordinances to walk therein. I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man do, he shall live. I am the Lord. Now I want you to take just 30 seconds. And I want you to just start picking out verses from Leviticus chapter 18, verse 6 down through verse 30. And just start reading a few verses. Remember what he said? He said, According to the land of Egypt, don't do. And according to Canaan, don't do. He says, don't be like them. Follow my law. Don't be like them. And then the rest of the chapter is a description of what their society and culture is like. Just take a moment. Read verses 6 down through verse 30. Each of these commands is based in what culture and society of Canaan and Egypt had become accustomed to and how they were living. Just read it for a moment. You have acts of incest, acts of immorality, acts of defilement. There's wickedness. And yet we would say, how is it that God allows someone to raise up and millions of people die? How is it that God didn't wipe out... Think This is what we're saying. How is it that God did not wipe out evil Hitler and all those that he convinced to follow him before they committed all these acts of violence? But then we look at Canaan and said, we don't say, how is it that God wiped out evil Canaanites? Look if you would, Genesis chapter 15, very quickly. Genesis 15. And see God's heart and how he views it. Genesis 15 takes place 400 years before Leviticus 18. Genesis 15, more than 400 years. Genesis 15, verses 12 through 14. God comes to Abram in a vision. When the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And lo, a horror of great darkness fell upon him. And he said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in the land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. God says, this is coming. Your people, my people, Abram's people, they're going to be afflicted by Egypt. And then, verse 14, And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, 
and afterward they shall come out with great substance. Notice verse 15, And thou shalt go to thy fathers to thy fathers in peace, thou shalt be buried in good old age, but in the fourth generation shall they come hither again. For the iniquity, notice this phrase, of the Amorites is not yet full. Who are the Amorites? That's the people that at this point, 400 years before, are living in Canaan. You see what God just told Abram? My people are going to be afflicted by people in Egypt for 400 years. And the people that are the Amorites living in Canaan, they're going to get to live in their wickedness for 400 more years. What is God saying? He's going to give them 400 years to repent. 400 years to turn to Him. 400 years. Notice the way He says it. Their iniquity is not yet full. Did you just read the description of Leviticus 18? Will we have patience for that kind of society and that kind of sin? If we were God, will we have patience for that kind of sin for that length of time? No, it is not that God is genocidal and murderous. It is that God is merciful and gracious. That He allows human beings to dwell even for an instant in their sin. Because we look at sin the wrong way. We look at sin by our moral statutes as if it is against ourselves. Have you ever noticed that? You think about the progression of things. And and in fact, you think about God's command toward Saul in particular as he comes in. There's all sorts of different times that this happened that God says, drive them out, drive them out, destroy and drive them out. But that was not that, that God preferred one group over another. It was that God was finally bringing judgment on generations of rejection and sin. And so as he comes in, Saul says, I have... God commands him for the Amalekites and Saul goes on and he doesn't do it, does he? And he says, oh, when God says, why did you spare the Amalekites? What do I hear? He says, God says, destroy everything, even their cattle. And he comes back and tells Saul, why didn't you destroy them? And Saul says, I did. Everybody except the king. Well, that wasn't possible. Because David, you remember when David was running from Saul? You remember that a group came in and took all of David's um, family captive, all of David and his men, all of those people, dozens and dozens of people. And it says they came in and they kidnapped them and they took them away. Do you remember who did that? It was the Amalekites. (laughs) So how is it that if Saul left only one king, (laughs) that years later, a whole host of them came and kidnapped David's family? In fact, it says that David, David and his men went in and they rescued them. It says it sent 400 Amalekites fleeing. They ran for their lives. So obviously there was more than that. There's a, there's a little bit of argument back forth to who it may be. You see that Agag was the king that was spared. Fast forward a few hundred years. There's a man named Haman that plotted to destroy the people of Israel. Do you know who it says that Haman was a descendant of? It says that Haman the Agagite. Say Haman, literally, most likely it appears, the descendant of Agag, the Amalekite, that God commanded should be destroyed. So when there's disobedience by God's people and not driving them out, what happens? They hang around long enough because God sees their rejection and their sin. They hang around long enough to cause more pain and more war and more because God sees the future. We don't understand God's reasoning and God's justice, but that's because we are not God. And we view ourselves as though we are. Here's the way we view God. We view God like He is Hitler giving a command to to Joshua to drive out the inhabitants of the people. But God's not a person. 
If Hitler gave the command, if Moses gave the command and said, you need to go and kill all these people, then that would be sin. And as much as we don't understand it, God gave this command in judgment after 400 years of long-suffering mercy. God gives this command, and so it's different. And we view sin differently, don't we? For instance, let me give you a, a little illustration. If I threaten my dog, I wouldn't do that. But let's say I'm frustrated with him. He's 14 years old. There's really not a whole lot that he can do wrong other than just wait out his time. If I threaten my dog, I'm probably not going to get in trouble. And if I do, it's going to be very little. But if I threaten you, and somebody hears about it, mm, now there's, there could be some issues. If I threaten a police officer or a public servant, there's going to be more consequence and more issues. If I threaten a celebrity or someone of great importance, quote-unquote, in culture and society, if I, and this is, let me clarify, this is for illustration's sake, if I threaten the President of the United States, I'm going to spend years in prison. You see the difference? If I sin against my dog by threatening it, nothing's going to happen. If I sin against this great person or this man of great authority, then there's a lot of weight that comes with it. We sin against the God of the universe. And the same threat that means nothing to this being, this dog, has great consequence when it's made against the wrong person. How much greater is it than when my sin is against the God of all creation of the universe? All sin is deserving of immediate death and judgment. So how is it? Notice if you would. Uh, turn if you would to... Um, let's, let's wrap up with a couple encouraging verses. So... I think we've established this is not God's desire towards people. Luke 12 tells us that God has the power to kill the body and the soul, and yet He doesn't. He gives us an opportunity to be saved. I want you to look, if you would, look at Hebrews chapter 1. And, and let's tie this to two other questions and we'll be finished. So God... We looked at God's character and nature in that, and we probably we, there's no way we can get all the way through it and ex- explain it to its death, but it gives us kind of a hint of it. The problem is not with God, the problem is with human beings. The problem is with our sin, that God is not belligerent and unjust. He is gracious and just. I want you to look, if you look, Hebrews chapter 1. So what about people who commit crimes and say that God told them to do it? Because I've heard Christians justify desires to go to war and desires to kill all people of a certain faith or religion. We had Christian crusades throughout history in which lots of evil and ransacking was done in the name of the advancement of the kingdom of God that had nothing to do with God's kingdom. And so how do we respond when people commit evil and say it is because God told them to? Hebrews chapter 1 Verse number one, God who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. So he says, how did God speak in the past? By prophets, by directly speaking to people through other people. Well, how does he speak now? Hath in these last days spoken to us by his son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things by whom he had made the worlds. He says, God used to speak this way directly to people. 
in, in an audible way even, and in a vision. Now, God speaks to people by His Son, through His Word. Peter says He's given us a, a more sure Word than even the prophets had of old. We kind of look at Daniel and uh, we look at Isaiah and Jeremiah and we think if we just had somebody that could come out and stand up and say, God told me last night in my dream to tell you this, then we would know exactly what God wants from our lives. No, God says far more sure than their Word from God is the Word that we now have about Jesus Christ. And what does Jesus tell us in reaction to other people. He is not giving us a command for war or to drive out enemies, but rather his kingdom rules in a different way. Look at Luke chapter 6. Or, or I'll read it for you one way or the other. You can look at Luke 6 or write it down. Verse 27 down through verse 30. So, so sometimes we, we have spun on this. So skeptics will look at the God of the Old Testament and say, that is an awful God. But there have been Christians throughout society that have looked at those commands and justified their own evil deeds because of them. Because they weren't commanded by God to do so. Say, so how do you know? Because Jesus doesn't contradict His Word. Notice what He says. His kingdom is new and good. Verse 27, But I say unto you which here love your enemies, do good to them which hate you, bless them that curse you, pray for them which despitefully use you, and unto him that smiteth thee on one cheek also, <clears throat> offer also the other, and him that take, taketh away thy cloak, forbid it not to take thy coat also. Give to every man that asketh of thee. And of him that taketh away thy goods, ask them not again. <laughs> you cannot read Jesus' words and justify senseless sin. You, you can't do it and say, God told me to do this. It's just impossible. So that leads us to one final question. Second Peter chapter 3. And all these sort of tie together. Because the question was sort of asked, how, is, how do we justify God's goodness even though these things were done in His name? We don't. God justifies Himself. He is perfect, pure, sinless. What do we think about others who justify sin based on God's what God has supposedly told them? They can't. And so that brings us to this last thought. Why is Jesus waiting to fix all of this? The type of question like, well, why didn't Jesus return before millions of people died in World War II? Why didn't Jesus return before the Twin Towers fell? Why didn't Jesus return before all these other catastrophes? So Second Peter gives us a fairly clear answer, and we'll finish with this because it's one of hope. It talks about the end of the world, and it says that at one point, verse 6, that the world was overflowed, destroyed, perished by water, and that one day it will perish again and be cleansed by fire. Verse 7, verse 8, But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. He says, your concept of time is not the same timeline that God has. It does not his concept of time. Notice verse 9, The Lord is not slack, means he's not delayed concerning his promise. What promise? The promise to return and make everything right. As some men count slackness. He, he says, the Lord is not delaying His promise the way that some people look at delay. Like if I tell Rob, I'm going to give you $5 for the, I was going to say the box of Twinkies, but I guess today for the Twinkie that I bought, uh, <laughs> that you bought me. I'm going to give you, I hate Twinkies, by the way. Do not bring Twinkies. I'm going to give you 5 bucks. I'm going to pay you. You give me 5 bucks. I'm going to buy a Twinkie. I'll pay you back. And then tomorrow I come to work. Oh, I didn't get by the bank. 
Wednesday. Oh, I didn't get by the bank either. Oh, actually, my bank closed. I got to figure out another way to get out cash. Oh, I had it, but I needed it for something else. You know, I needed to buy my own kids lunch. Don't you care for my children, Rob? You know, I'll get you your $5. And then six months from now, I'm still holding off, delaying, fulfilling what I told Rob that I would do. Because I'm lazy, or because I have no desire to fulfill it, or because I'm delaying my promise because I don't want to do it. What God is saying in Second Peter chapter 3 is, Jesus is not delaying for the same ways that you think of other people delaying. Because they're lazy. Or because they don't want to do what they said they were going to do. Notice, notice the end of the verse. But it's because why? Because He is long-suffering to usward. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. What is he saying? Why is God waiting to make the world right? Because he wants more people to come to him in salvation. And as hard as it is for us to understand, yes, it means more people will perish in hell, but it means that his deep love and grace so deeply longs to save others. He says he's not delaying because he doesn't want to fill his promise or because he can't. He's delaying because he deeply wants people to repent. And he longs to save and bring people into his family. We don't serve a God who just flippantly destroys people because he hates them. We serve a God who delays for hundreds and thousands of years because he so deeply loves people that is completely different than the way the world sees Jesus. You go talk to many people tonight, that is not the God that they understand or see when they read the Bible. And sometimes it's because that's not the God that we portray. We look at God impatiently and think, God, my family member, another family member died. Another struggle, another bill, another problem, another evil thing. I've had these... You can ask... My wife, I've had these thoughts and struggles even recently. God, why, why is this not all just better? Like right now, why don't you just fix all this for us? Because somewhere in this world, in the last five minutes, someone repented. And in the next five minutes, somebody else will too. In fact, it'll be hundreds more. And a week from now, when we regather here on Sunday morning there will be thousands more people that their eternity is settled in heaven than there were today. Now, let us sink in. The, the work that God is doing amongst the gospel, amongst, in this entire world, we think, God, just returns and my problems will go away and, and all this cruel stuff won't happen. And God said, breathe, wait. There's, there's, just, there's more. There's more that will come. There's more that will come. There's more that will come. We don't see it that way. But the Bible teaches us that we should. And so may we be patient with the Lord as He is infinitely patient with us. Let's ask the Lord. Hopefully this answered some of the questions that we've done. In the next few weeks it'll be a little different. We'll have kind of one topic that each of these classes will address. You'll be able to pick. But hopefully some of these things have been helpful as we have entered into it. And if there's something else or something more I can help you with individually, I would love to. I have a few books and resources, things I can point you to or even give you 
if you have other or somebody else that, that's asking you these questions. Um, we want to we want to do our best to give an answer of the hope that's in us, as the Lord has commanded us to. Uh, let's be dismissed tonight. Uh, Brother Kelly, would you close us in prayer and we'll be dismissed?